0: To say that Jesus Christ rules and reigns over all things is an easy thing to say, but oftentimes our lives tend to reflect the opposite. Join us, Abounding Grace, with Pastor Gary Wagner, is coming up next. From Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose, this is Abounding Grace. Greetings. Welcome to our program today. We're back in Luke chapter 10, looking at the first 20 verses where Jesus sends out his disciples. It's an amazing sending and a commissioning, showing us that Jesus Christ alone rules and reigns over all things. Now, we say that and we believe it, but do we really, do our lives reflect that belief? That's the challenge that we face today here on Abounding Grace. Join us. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner with today's broadcast.
1: You know, some passages of Scripture are protein. Other passages are carbohydrates. And others are just plain, simple sugar. Well, Luke 10 has protein, carbohydrates, and sugar all wrapped up in these 20 verses. So, let's take the time today to make sure we understand what they are saying, and then we're going to make several applications from these verses to our own lives and to the church. First of all, remember the situation here. So many of the text in Luke 9 and 10 cannot be understood unless you first understand the situation of this entire section of Luke. Remember, Jesus has resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem to die. And everything else seems to be secondary to that. There is an urgency about this situation. The shadow of the cross seems to fall upon everything. The final decisive battle with Satan. The final rejection of Jesus Christ by the Jews all approaching in Jerusalem. So you have this sense of haste and hurry and everything you read in our text. And you have towns in between where Jesus is and Jerusalem that have not had the gospel preached to them. That must be reached before Jesus is nailed to the cross. There are people who must hear the word of God and these 70 preachers or to hurry to these towns and villages, not letting anything hinder them or slow them down. Now probably the area which Jesus is talking about here is a place called Transjordan. Now Transjordan contained mostly Gentiles, many pagans and the Jews that lived there were not too ceremonially devout because they had been largely neglected by the Jewish leaders. So here you have 70 preachers going out to preach to many, many thousands of people, spreading the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, possibly for the first time to the ears of these people. Now, like so much of the Bible... Especially Luke. You can't understand the situation, nor why Luke says what he does the way he does, unless you understand some of the Old Testament background. Luke knew his Old Testament, even though he was a Greek. Many times his passages just exude Old Testament allusion and prophecy. And this passage does the same. For instance, why does Jesus choose 70 disciples? Why didn't he choose 50 or 63 or 110? Why did he choose 70 disciples to go out and preach the gospel? Well, if you remember, first of all, early in the first, chapter, uh, first part of chapter 9, that Jesus chose 12 disciples to go to the 12 tribes of Israel. And now he's sending 70 preachers to the 70 nations. Now, you might be asking, why do I say 70 nations? Well, if you know your Old Testament, you know that at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 10, there is a table of nations as they begin in embryonic form to develop in the world. And there are 70 nations in that table representing the entire world. And because Jesus, of course, knew the Old Testament so well, that number 70 is no accident. These men are being called to go into the world represented in those 70 nations because they had a worldwide vision to convert the nations. And ultimately... In a very real sense, their work and ours does not conclude until, as Psalm 22:27 says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of nations will worship before Him. These 70 preachers are also going forth as the new covenant people, the new Israel of God. And number 70 is significant in the life of Israel. There were 70 people in Jacob's household that went to Egypt as the seed of the new covenant people. Moses, in Exodus 20, as he was forming the government of Israel, chose 70 men full of the Holy Spirit to assist in the governing of the people of God. And did you know that the Sanhedrin was made up of 70 men plus the high priest? So here you have Jesus saying, this now is the new Israel. The old Israel has turned from me, and this is the new covenant people of God. The old one is about to be smashed in the judgment and the fall of Jerusalem. And this is a new 70, appointed by the new and better Moses, empowered by the Holy Spirit and the new Sanhedrin, the harvesters to take the world for the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we have that word harvest. So many of Jesus' parables have this idea of harvesting. It is a deliberate allusion to the imagery in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets spoke of a harvest. And when they did, in a messianic sense, it meant a coming of the Lord's Christ for His people. A harvest of grace on one hand and a harvest of wrath on the other a harvest of salvation for the people of God on one hand, and a judgment for the enemies of God on the other. Now let's look at a couple of passages that bear this out. Turn first of all to Isaiah 27, and then we're going to turn to Amos 9, and you'll see two of the prophecies that help us understand what Jesus meant when he said, the harvest is plentiful. Now keep in mind... We don't want to read back into the Bible things that we want it to say. We want to let the Bible interpret itself. So listen carefully. Isaiah 27, beginning in verse 12. says, And it will come about on that day that the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, and you'll be gathered one by one, as sons of Israel. And then Amos chapter 9, and I'll be reading verses 13 and 14. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will outtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seeds. When the mountains will drip sweet wine, and all the hills will be dissolved. And I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their vine and make gardens and eat their fruit. So the Old Testament looks forward to a great harvest day. When God's people shall be gathered in and God's enemies will be rejected. And that's the way Jesus understood this. How do I know? Do you remember his parable about the wheat and the tares in Matthew chapter 13? Well, in verse 39, Jesus said, And the harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear... Let him hear. There is a great harvest day coming, beloved. What's going to happen on that harvest day? The tares or the weeds, God's enemies, are going to be uprooted and burned out of the wheat field. And the wheat, God's elect, are going to be gathered into the Lord's service. Remember that now, especially for next week when we try to understand what this wheat harvest is that these men are sent to gather. And there's another word in our text that you must see in its Old Testament context. There in that very first verse says, now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others. This is characteristic of the gospel of Luke. More than any other gospel writer, he uses the Lord, the word Lord, as a name for Jesus. And that word Lord has Old Testament roots, as well as political roots for this Greek man, Luke. For instance, Jesus is called Lord to emphasize that he is the messianic deity with full authority. He is called Lord because in Greek, that is what Caesar called himself. And Luke places Jesus as superior to all the civil potentates that were mere men. And then thirdly, in the Old Testament, that word Lord was used for Jehovah himself. So here Luke emphasizes, as he does so many times, that Jesus of Nazareth is Jehovah incarnate. Now, let's look at Luke 10 so that we can begin to see the flow of thought and what's actually going on here. In verse 1 through 3 we read, And after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Here we see Jesus sending out these 70 preachers, and he tells them in verse 1, that they have a world mission. This gospel, this gospel of my kingdom, what I came to accomplish, is not confined to just the Jews, one race. You have this Transjordan area full of pagans and numerous races. And they are to have the gospel preached to them and be brought in to the kingdom. And then in verse 2, he sets out his theology of mission. He says the harvest is plenteous and the labors are few. And he roots their mission in the hope of an immense number of believers being there on the last day. And as they faithfully go out and preach the word of God, they are moving the world closer to that great and final day when the Lord Jesus Christ will come and all men shall stand before him. What we happen to call the judgment day. And then in verse 3, he reminds them of the danger of this mission. I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, any person here knows that's a very dangerous situation. I mean, what can a lamb do by itself in the face of a pack of wolves? Well, I thought of one thing. Be eaten. Wolves eat lambs. And he emphasizes their danger by saying, you 70 preachers who are going out, you're just a bunch of lambs in this world in and of yourself. You're going to get eaten up if you depend upon yourself. And then he uses a Greek, a word in Greek that doesn't actually come out very well in the English. And he says, I am sending you. I send you. The word send in the Greek is a word from which we get apostle. I am sending you out as my representatives. And then the word I, E-G-O, ego in the Greek, is an emphatic I. I, the Son of God, and no one else, the Lord your God incarnate, I am sending you out so you have absolutely nothing to worry about. I am your protector. On your own, you are helpless, but I am sending you out, and I will be with you. You represent me, and I'm not about to abandon you. Don't worry about the wolves. They can't touch a hair on your head without my will. And then in verses 4 through 9, which, beloved, is a very important passage for the church today to read, he spells out the methods of evangelism. What are the methods that I want you, who proclaim the gospel, to use in reaching the Transjordan area? Look at verses 4 through 9. Carry no purse, no bag, no shoes, greet no one on the way, and whatever house you enter first, say peace to this house. And if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if it not, it will return to you. And stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. And whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now obviously the orders Jesus is giving them to do have to do with the immediate situation. Being on the verge of the crucifixion, the urgency of the moment, and what Jesus is saying, and what is Jesus saying to them? Well, he's saying that first of all, there will be a necessity for complete trust in me and for haste. So don't take an extra pair of shoes, don't take an extra shirt, don't carry a purse, don't greet anyone on the way. Now, he's not saying be impolite on the road when you meet someone and just sort of grunt and go on. That's not what he's saying here at all. If you know anything about Middle Eastern culture, you know that greetings along the road with each other can be elaborate and quite lengthy. And the whole point is, there is an emergency about your task, so don't get stuck in some kind of elaborate greeting along the way. It's time for preaching. Preaching. It's not time for greeting. There's an urgency of the moment. I'm going to die. I want cities to hear the gospel before I pass from the scene. And I want you to depend on me. And that's why he makes the whole point of bringing no purse. Now, Jesus wasn't saying be beggars. He was saying, I want you to depend completely on me to provide you with everything you need in these last moments of my life. Because time is short. This is the time for preaching, not for worrying about where your next meal is going to come from or for some elaborate greeting along the road. Then notice what he says. If you go into a house, say, peace be with you. Now that was in some way a fairly common greeting. You can hear Israelites to this day greet each other with shalom and others return the greeting with shalom alahim. But what God has sent the 70 to do is not really just a common greeting. This is the greeting of peace from men who are bearers of the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And peace here is an objective word. It is observable. You notice he says, if you go to a house where the head of that house is the son of peace or desires the peace you are offering through faith, stay there and make that your headquarters. Don't go from house to house trying to find a better bed or better food. Stay there in that house if the head is a son of peace. If they receive the peace, great. If they don't receive it, and it will come back to you. Peace is spoken here as an objective thing, something that can actually be rejected. It's not looked at here as a as a feeling. He, he's not saying, now go into these people's homes to calm them down and make them happy and no longer depressed and nervous and hectic and stressful. Speak he, uh, peace to them and so they feel a lot better. Calm the storms of their hearts and their lives. He's not talking about a subjective peace. He's talking about shalom. He's talking about a new relationship with God that brings total health to a person and his family that eventually produces subjective feelings of calmness of spirit. But that's just the byproduct. What Jesus came to do was make peace between men and the living God. I'm sure you've heard preachers say, you better make your peace with God. beloved." The problem is, is you can't. You can't obey the law of God good enough. You can't die to yourself sufficiently without the work of the Holy Spirit to have peace with God. Peace is an objective new position between a person and God because of what the Lord Jesus Christ did. We were formerly His enemies, but Jesus came to reconcile us by His death. And now through faith we are made friends with God. For we are reconciled. Peace has been made between us and the living God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And what has that brought us? The word peace actually means complete health. It means victory. The joys of life that result from victory in war over an enemy. It involves rest. It involves the restoration of broken relationships. That's the peace Jesus is talking about. A peace where there is no resistance to Jesus at all. Go into a house, preach the gospel of peace, the peace that I will make through my coming death on the cross, that I offer that transforms all life. If they accept it, great. Stay there, bless them, heal the sick. If they don't, shake the dust off your feet. And we'll come back in a few minutes to understand what that means. Notice in verse 8 and 9, he says, if they accept this gospel, perform miracles and heal the sick. Now, why did Jesus give them the power to heal the sick? Was it simply because he didn't want people ill? No, the reason for miracles wasn't just to make people feel better, but proof That the kingdom of God was present with all of its saving power. It was self-evident testimony from God Himself that the claims of Christ are true. And this man, who is preaching the word of God to you, speaks the word of God inerrantly. You see, miracles were things that only God can enable a man to do. So if a man was speaking the word of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, or if the Lord Jesus Christ was making claims about himself, God would give that man or Christ the power to perform the miracles. God says, I'm the only one who can do these miracles, and through them, I'm telling you, this man speaks my word. This man speaks the truth. Now... We have seen on other occasions as we've gone through Luke that miracles were confined to the apostolic age and the creation of the Bible. And since that time they have passed off the scene and we can no longer expect them to be performed today. But here Jesus says to these preachers, perform miracles to reassure those you meet that God is giving the testimony through you that the kingdom of God in all of its power has been present In your home. Now, notice the target of the preaching mission of these 70 preachers in Transjordan. Look at some verses with me and see if you can tell what this target is. What are they truly aiming for? In verse 3, there is a phrase that says, In every city and place. And in verse 8, it says, Whatever city you enter. Verse 10, all cities which are rebuked. Now, can you see what the target of their mission was? It was the conquest of cities. The conversion of cities. It was not of solitary, detached individuals, isolated from each other, scattered here and there over a particular region. As important as that is. They were to go and aim at conquering and converting cities.
0: Well, that's all the time we have. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, the ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. It is our goal and desire that you would abound in grace through the preaching and teaching of God's Word. 8665607